Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talked to Matt Lawrence, director of the think tank Commonwealth, and Laurie Labon Langton, author and researcher, about their new book, Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. We discussed the multiple overlapping ecological, economic and political crises the world is facing in the era of climate breakdown, the rise of eco-fascism and how the left should respond. Thank you, as always, to all our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, please support us on patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at aworldtowinpod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Matt Lawrence and Laurie Laybourne Langton on their new book, Planet on Fire. Hello to Matt Lawrence and Laurie Laybourne Langton, and thank you for joining me today on this episode of A World Win. How are you both doing? We're good. It's, it's lovely to be here with you. Yeah, good to, good to see you, Grace, or hear you, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you both on the show. As some listeners may know, uh, Matt, Laurie and I, full disclosure, used to work together at the IPPR, at the Institute for Public Policy Research. So this is something of a fun reunion, isn't it, guys? Yeah, that, that's what, I think that's primarily why we're doing it, aren't we? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that the, we would be sued like we were that one time uh, over that report. That, that's, that's the question. Yeah, we're not going to go into that today, <laughs> maybe for another yeah, episode. That'll be the bonus after the uh, you know, so special <laughs> edition of this. But today we are going to be talking about your excellent new book, Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. So why don't you start by telling me why you both decided to take time off your very important jobs in policy land to write this book now? I think, to be honest, it goes back to, to the, the time that we all shared uh, at IPPR. Day to day, we'd go into meetings with people, um, people in, in government, uh, in the civil service, politicians, other people in think tanks and, and wider civil society. And often, we wouldn't get much, if any, engagement with this huge thing that many people have been talking about for a very long time, but hadn't seemed to enter the mainstream policy imaginary, which was this global environmental crisis, which had implications for every single policy area, and not just the parceled off area of energy and climate change, as it often was approached at the time. And as time went on, over the period of, say, 2016, 2017 into 2018, before the latest explosion in movements that are really grasping the nettle on the environmental crisis, it was hugely frustrating. And as time went on, we learned that so many others were sharing that frustration as well, both people who'd been doing it for a very long time, but also people who were kind of our age as well, who were really starting to say, this needs to be at the forefront of everything. And then we had this huge explosion over the last few years, Fridays for the Future, Extinction Rebellion, you know, all of the things that now make sure that the political imaginary has conceived this as a, as a huge environmental crisis, an unprecedented moment of peril. And our book is, is an effort to try and sort of navigate both, I guess, our intellectual journey in grasping these things, but also provide a little bit of a guide to a lot of the ideas out there, not just on how bad it is, but moreover on what we can do to respond effectively to it. 
And I, th- I think the other context in some ways was sort of the rhythm of the book and how it's sort of uh, interlaced with external politics. So that sort of sense of, you know, the transformative potential of politics and then, you know, it's, it's relative foreclosing via sort of electoral defeat or other forms. But then at the same time, as Laurie mentioned, sort of how the crises and contradictions of environmental crisis and how that interlinks with sort of capitalist stagnation and the inequality crisis, how those are then sort of driving these eruptions, you know, not just in the sort of formal environmental movement, but in sort of a whole host of, sort of anti-racist, um, so, you know, housing movements. There's a whole set of movements bubbling up and sort of trying to sort of echo and amplify those um, arguments for a systemic response to a systemic crisis was the sort of backdrop. So there's like obviously a huge amount of information in this book. And yeah, I mean, this comes out for both of you of like a a lot of research, not just on climate breakdown, but on um, kind of environmental degradation across across a whole kind of range of spheres. As a kind of teaser, I'd want you to kind of tell our listeners what you think some of the most important and interesting stats and figures that you want them to take away to just illustrate the scale of this crisis that we're facing. Oh, that's okay. That's a good one. Um, in in general, um, we're not just seeing change in the natural world that is unprecedented in human history. So over the course of, of tens of thousands of years, but in in some cases millions, and in others billions. By some measures, for example, the nitrogen cycle, which along with the carbon cycle, water, and others, like one of the key life support systems of the planet, we think that that may. Be may have been changed or being changed more in the last say century or so since we've developed the ability to to sort of you know to to be pulling nitrogen out of these natural processes at the scale we need to say for example grow our food in a way that it, it has not been changed in its well over two billion year history. We've got a situation where I think something like one in eight of all species that we know of are at threat at risk of extinction in the coming years, many in, in say, the coming uh, decade. We're in a situation where the the land that we're using to make food, where it's tilled, the soil is de- being depleted at many, many times um, the, the rate in which, it, I think about 100 times faster than the rate can be replenished by natural processes. Some estimates say a, a, as much as a third of the world's cropland may have been severely damaged you know that that's a, a sort of global catastrophe in and of itself and and it, this sort of listening catastrophe you can you can reel off on and on and on but the key thing to to take from it is 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 to understand that it's it's not just that this goes beyond a climate crisis which is increasingly obviously in people's minds particularly in, in sort of political minds and in realizing that you it's not just that there's in this sort of other almost discrete crisis over there of say you know the extinction crisis or the biodiversity crisis or whatever they are intimately related to each other and it's an over this is why we called it environmental breakdown it's an overall crisis of of the natural world driven by human activity and one of the most pressing consequences of that is that massive changes in one particular area like for example the temperature globally rising as a result of pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere have knock-on effects for other parts of the world and they can cascade into each other and that kind of runaway destabilization of the natural world is something that we are seriously at risk of having triggered if not in some cases already triggered i think the other thing would be to really sort of hammer home is, is less sort of individual fat though you can look you know the sort of 
dashboard is flashing red in, in almost every area you look at, biodiversity, the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle. I think the other thing to really stress is these sort of interlocking crises in the environment are not separate from uh, or incidental to the crises we see in care, in the economy, in inequality, mm. but actually sort of share a common root and are inseparable from it. Sort of capitalism as a mode of regulating nature, as sort of Jason Moore argues, but also as a sort of way of reproducing itself. It's completely reliant upon this extraction of value from labour, from nature, from environmental systems. And therefore, this is not sort of something that's just sort of you know, a few bad eggs at the top of Exxon or whatever. It's sort of it's hydraulic in the nature of the extreme extractive economic model that we have that's sort of expanded and enclosed all environmental systems within it. And so there's this deep sort of systemic crisis at the heart of it. And that's why we sort of really stress the need for you know, not just sort of ameliorative action, but actually systemic responses around the deep drivers of ownership, of finance, of governance, if we're going to get out of this sort of spiral. I mean, you both there have drawn on two ways of trying to conceptualise this problem as a systemic one, right? One using the language of kind of systems theory, which we see in this uh, this use of like words like tipping points and path dependencies, which is obviously made use of in that famous hothouse earth report where you start mm. to see the destabilization of some systems then leading to kind of feedback loops that create much um, more significant impacts over the longer term and, and causation just looks much less difficult to kind of ascertain and then you Matt were obviously saying you know we have to look at this understand this as part of um, a wider you know kind of relationship with nature there's one way of you know if you were going to be theoretical about it you could say looking at, at capitalism as a as a totality looking at the metabolism that that implies with nature all of these things require us to think quite differently about the way we normally understand just causation right so we you know live in this way of looking at the world where we're like where we put more stuff into the atmosphere that makes it heat up a certain amount we stop putting stuff into the atmosphere that'll make it cool down a certain amount but actually that isn't really how this works like firstly we're looking at systemic and potentially kind of exponentially increasing transformations and also it's not enough just to change one element of the economy we have to change almost everything to be able to get around this this issue yeah i i think that's a that's a neat way of thinking about it and and far more of a complete way of thinking about it than we're getting anywhere near uh, i think even in some of the mainstream civil society campaigning that's that's popped up in the last couple of years. The observation from, for example, climate scientists that we remain in a situation where the greatest determinant of the future temperature rise in large parts is down to the amount of greenhouse gas emissions we put into the atmosphere. And as far as we can tell, and you know, we must stress here that we are not climate scientists, that is absolutely the right thing. But you have to then, that, that's the physical system, you have to understand that the the processes of change across the socioeconomic systems that will then determine the greenhouse gas emissions that go in the atmosphere, which itself then determines temperature rises and the other complex interactions of the sort of overall earth systems, life support system, all of these different parts of nature. Th- that is where you, you, you have to better understand that you saying reducing emissions now and reducing it as quickly as possible is, is the primary objective we need to have itself may be correct but that is the sort of the, the the very initial starting point it's the huge amount of change to our human systems that would enable that to happen that we have to have at the forefront mm-hmm. of our minds and that is obviously often missed or obscured or, or 
purposely mm. pushed out of the limelight. Yeah, and I mean, picking up on your sort of reference to sort of the metabolic rift, which I suppose you know came from Marx, but I guess was most famously developed in Marx's Ecology, a book by John Bellamy Foster. I mean, that's absolutely in some ways we really sort of trace that sort of tension between human and non-human natures and their sort of metabolic relationships and how you know capitalism has sort of sought to sort of reify you know capital over those metabolic um you know sort of relationships so it's sort of it's about accumulation rather than sort of sustainability it's about sort of profit making over life making it's about these sort of deep tensions and and that's why yeah again it goes to these sort of structural fault lines and it's not then just about sort of you know can we transition to different energy systems it becomes about that totality as you say it becomes questions of our, you know how we organize our food systems how we organize social relationships and social reproduction it becomes sort of such such sort of uh, more holistic and systemic challenge and while i think you know there are plenty of movements and politics now you know recognizing and centering that nonetheless certainly in the mainstream that you know a bar a few sort of moments in recent years that sense of the metabolic rift as being a sort of totality and a systemic issue really hasn't sort of sunk in. And that's, you know, partly because people haven't thought about it enough, but also there's also an awful lot of ideological work trying to sort of, you know, put that back in the box. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the book's trying in some ways, you know, put effort behind those who are also saying, look, actually, no, if this is about a sort of metabolic shift, then we need to have a much more sort of holistic and sustainable approach to how we'd organise our economy going forwards rather than sort of tweaks at the margin. There's loads and loads of policy ideas in the book as well. um, And I want to talk about those in a bit. But I guess one question that I have is around, you know, so we are looking at at capitalism as this totality, its relationship with nature. But that also requires analysing, you know, political economy as one kind of moment or part of that system, not something that's entirely separate. And therefore looking at the state and at state policy as something that is bound up within all those existing relationships. So, you know, it's not as though we can say, right, well, there's the market and the economy in inverted commas over here and the stuff that's going on there is capitalism and it's bad, but we have the state over here. And if we can just get that, grab it, reorient it, we can kind of change the way that that thing over there works. Obviously, these two things are very, very intimately related. And I'm wondering what you guys think would be the the kind of the the theory the theory of change I suppose to use a kind of think tank <laughs> terminology as to how um, these brilliant ideas that kind of really form the the foundations of a lot of brilliant thinking that's taken place over the British left over the last several years how we might begin to popularize these and think about putting them into action within the state and also within all these other institutions that within which we need to kind of gain power. Well, I think. One way of thinking about it is sort of, you know, the political economy that we're trying to sort of challenge and transform, one of its central features is it seeks to sort of naturalise social relationships and organisational structures, institutional forms, that and naturalise them and sort of take them out of politics, make them seem sort mm. of, uh, you know, conventional, habitual, rather than things that politics, rather than that sort of social struggle has formed and, and enacted. And at the same time as that naturalisation of the social world, it also is a completely reliant, you know, in energy sources and resources on the wealth of natural systems. So there's that double sort of uh, linkage between sort of naturalization and natural systems that it relies upon. So in some ways, sort of how you move beyond that in some ways is exactly by attacking that that weak point of stressing its denaturalness, 
And so, you know, what does that mean? It means sort of like saying, you know, as you're alluding to in some way, saying, look, the market is something, there's not one sort of unilateral market, but markets are inevitably shaped and emerge from politics and law and social struggle. So can we sort of contest, you know, whether it's about labour rights, whether it's about, it's about sort of the purpose of the corporation, there's a whole host of things that we can begin to contest and struggle over. And, you know, key to that, as you say, is in some ways the state, the state not just as a sort of object but as a social relationship sort of terrain struggle over and there, there's a whole host of things we, we speak about in the book around you know a politics that's you know within but beyond uh formal party structures and around you know being in and against the party as well as being in and against and transforming the state we talk about social movements so whether that's ecological movements you know renters movements anti-racist movements how these can all begin to cohere power and create forms of leverage in different sites in the system and i think you can also begin to look at you know, there's that Andreas Malm book around um, how mm. to blow up a pipeline. And in some ways, you know, as I say, because there's that sort of attempt to sort of, uh, hide our reliance on natural systems in the material world, sort of dematerialising the world. But actually, there's a huge range of sort of choke points, leverage points in the fossil fuel infrastructure that we sort of rely upon. And those are sort of potential sites for organising around, for building up uh, points of leverage. So I think it's sort of a multi-layered sort of set of interventions, um, you know, whether it's on the local and building sort of social power, whether it's about sort of formal politics and beginning to construct sort of majority, many of you few dichotomy of like, the true radicals are those who are cleaving to the status quo. Mm. It's actually an emancipatory project that makes much more sense in a condition of sort of environmental breakdown through to sort of, you know, problematizing and sort of like revealing in some ways that actually, you know, the world we live in did not fall from the sky, but actually was built and therefore can be remade. Yeah, these um these questions of power, which I think you guys bring out really, really well in the book. Um, and I think that's something we can talk about this distinction later something that kind of sets you apart from many others in the environmental movement but again it's, it's not just about how the powerful are supporting climate breakdown and they benefit from climate breakdown which you guys bring out really well it's also about how we wrest power back how the majority as you were just saying can wrest power back from those who have an active stake in the kind of degradation of the planet and build a, a movement on the back of that and how powerful these demands can be as like an animating force for that movement. So we've seen it with XR, with the school strikes, etc. And Chantal Mouf has written about how a Green New Deal can act as the, the kind of foundations for a new green populism, kind of cohering these demands and movements together. That seems like, you know, in terms of the political foundations for this, like it's going to be really, really important in uh, in the years to come. I, mean, I don't want to get too much in, in depth into like, you know, strategy and politics and all that stuff. But do you guys think that that is something that the left should be should be focusing on and, and trying to bring together? Yeah, precisely. And it, it's in that the, the populist potential of something like a Green New Deal, where there's a there's a huge amount there to, to take and run with, based upon a, a lot of, as you were saying earlier, the amazing thinking that's been done across progressive communities in recent years, and of course, before, and turning what is often seen as or connecting what is often seen as a as an abstract you know global problem the preserve of a, a sort of overeducated metropolitan elite connecting it with the lived experience of people who've suffered in so many different ways from the neoliberal consensus of the last many decades uh, for me is is where the huge power of the green new deal frame comes into play and it provides mm. tactically for example uh, 
a way in which you can play around with the particular framing that you're going to employ. Because marvelously, we now really know, probably have always known, that a lot of the things that we need to do to deal with this over environmental crisis are also the things that we could have been doing anyway to improve social, yeah. economic, and other outcomes for people. And if you think of it like that, the real issue here is to make sure that we're we're framing those connections properly in front of appropriate audiences. So it really speaks most to their particular concern, the thing that particularly draws them into understanding how the connections across this nexus. And I think that we, we, we've seen an amazing experimentation around that in the US, for example, where the Green New Deal isn't just something that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez talks about on Instagram. Um, it's something that extends to, for example, local campaigning, uh, local organizers um, yeah. in New York when it comes to social housing, which is terrible, uh, which has had all the money sucked out of it, where people are living in conditions that are just not fit for de- decent in any measure uh, habitation. And they are connecting the overall change that we're going to have to see in society to ensure that we don't completely destroy the physical, the biophysical preconditions mm. of society with then the very near term lived experience of those people, those, those low income people, often people of color, who are living in that terrible housing. And that provides such an, it, it's a hugely exciting opportunity that that provides us with to have all of these intersections connect together to make this, make, make sense of what is could and clearly is, is emerging as an overall movement for change. I mean, I think just to build, build on that and to build on your point about sort of most sort of theory of agonism and sort of, um, centering of antagonism and political conflict and sort of I don't know, left Schmitty and us be them I think we definitely say in the book that there is real strength in that you know uh, really stressing and centering that dichotomy you know where, you know whether it's sort of you know people fighting for you know um, environmental justice in locations against you know investors that are sort of you know perpetuating bad air pollution whatever it might be so there's, there's a sort of whole set of things that 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 does work I'd say that like in some ways one of the sort of political challenges and we really stress that above all you know the transition to a post-carbon future and a sort of uh, future environmental sustainability more widely is is a political challenge and a political crisis and a crisis mm. of power over a sort of challenge of you know science or sort of technical systems mm. i think in some ways the, the, the challenge for us in some ways and i think there's some analogies here with you know the work of people like melinda cooper around sort of how the asset economy has sort of imbricated people into sort of certain sort of ways of living, forms of sort of accumulation, is that, you know, the sort of many be few antagonism is quite a challenging one. I think we should be honest about that in the sense that, you know, we are all bound up necessarily in a world that fossil capital has built. We yeah. have our sort of pensions, if we're lucky enough to have them, you know, may well be reliant upon, you know, sort of projected returns from Exxon or wherever it might be. We're reliant upon sort of infrastructures and technologies that are necessarily built in a world of you know, intense and so violent extraction. And so I think, you know, the challenge, a bit like with sort of asset economy, of which, of course, like fossil capital and, you know, our current economy is deeply built and linked to is, is how do we sort of have those antagonisms that are necessary while also being able to build up sort of majoritarian sort of antagonism that doesn't sort of put on the other side of the equation. People are like, well, actually, you know, I quite like my job in the sort of, you know, X, Y, Z, which is heavily linked to carbon, or I quite like sort of, you know, the existing you know, you, you don't want to end up on the wrong side of that dichotomy, and I think mm. I, I think that de- that line definitely can be traversed, but it'll require sort of exactly because we are so deeply bound up in a world of you know that the fossil capital is built, it'll require sort of you know 
careful negotiation and mobilization of coalitions to sort of traverse that i think politically mm-hmm. and 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 providing people with with alternatives proof of concept of alternatives yeah. so that there's something a different track for people then to move on to yeah i mean there's there's two things here i think which is one around you know the the necessity of centering power and politics and another one which which is around um the need to kind of convince people that you know to use a very hackneyed phrase a better world is possible um so first this question of power i mean this is really what sets your book apart from many other stuff that you will read about the climate crisis and there are obviously a lot of books out out there about that now Mm. but a lot of the kind of traditional um, environmental literature is to only slightly you know make a pastiche of it humanity is is the virus you know <laughs> covid is the is the solution it's kind of like we this collective um of humanity are doing all these terrible things to the planet and it's our fault and we're all you know terrible we're parasites on the earth this classic example that you used which i thought was was brilliant was this the easter island example mm. and that kind of very uncritical lens which is like we all just have to be different and if we can't be different then you know everyone will die and and that's that and you really kind of take aim in that and say no this isn't just the anthropocene this is the capitalocene or the oliganthropocene or whatever all these other phrases that you have there's no scene like coming up with a scene is is the thing i (laughs) really makes me feel like it is the scene yeah the scene yeah sorry interrupting you (laughs) no i mean like you know take it from there i was just kind of wondering um yeah like what where that places you in terms of relationship with other environmentalists writing about this stuff does that create challenges yeah i think it always it always will the temptation when developing strategy on the environment as i think with any type of of antagonistic change that you you want when it comes to the how society is organized where there's the mm, we could do this softly softly we're clearly making progress and don't scare the horses too much and then one that is one that is much closer to the reality of the situation, at least in our analysis. And that has a particular element to it here because the stakes are so vertiginously high and we can't can't mess this up, you know, in, in terms of reaching certain reductions in environmental destruction. And we've been warned heavily now. We've had a lot of final warnings from particularly Earth system scientists, the people who, who understand this as an overall system, that we could be well on the way to triggering. And in fact, in some cases, having triggered some of these potentially catastrophic tipping points, which basically break the planet for future current and, and future generations. And they're all in that very, uh, that perilous context, it's always very easy, I think, to say, hang on a minute, we can't scare the horses. And that's something that's particularly the case here in the UK, where the Conservative mm. Party is the party of, for example, net zero decarbonisation. And this sort of consensus around particularly the climate crisis as an issue that requires action in the Conservative Party has been well guarded to some degree in the eyes of some people over the last number of decades. But we know that the kind of changes that we're going to need are going to have to be far greater. And it, it's quite something to when you actually read the scientific literature on this, they are very clear how we need these unprecedented changes. They don't just say in technologies. I mean, they, they obviously talk about technology, but they talk about in paradigms, in goals, in socio-political structures. Mm-hmm. And that is obviously, obviously locked off. And that's why you mentioned Easter Island there. We wanted to cite 
our history. Well, in fact, let me put it like this. Our first chapter is about the sort of imperial antecedents of the crisis we're in now. Our first chapter is not, hey, guys, this is how bad the environmental crisis is. Our first chapter is on that because we didn't think it made sense to jump straight in with telling everyone how everything is screwed <laughs> because that, A, that's often the way it's done. But B, you, you, after hearing that, you're, you're left thinking, well, what, you know, what do you want me to do with that? Whereas we thought we would start the book with an exploration of how if you look back at the last 500 years of how people and places have been exploited by certain economic structures and dynamics that have grown up and become globalized, you have to also extend that to have a full analysis to understand how that, that it's people, places and planet as its entirety. Yeah, and, and building on that, I mean, two things really. One, you mentioned that sort of that sort of meme in, in sort of lockdown one, those, those glory days um, of lockdown, whereas, you know, what was it? You know, humanity is the virus, coronavirus is the cure, whatever it was. And that's exactly the type of politics that seeks to sort of like flatten out responsibility, flatten out sort of the distribution of who's suffering, who's benefiting from you know, the accumulation of sort of environmental harms that, you know, as Laurie says, goes back centuries, not just decades. And it's exactly that sort of depoliticization that we need to contest and push back against and actually sort of say, actually, no, the crisis is already here for hundreds of millions of people. It's accelerating and compounding, but critically, the distribution of that pain, and this is what makes it politically a different challenge to sort of, you know, many other ones we face. The distribution of that pain will be intensely uneven and intensely unequal and unjust in the sense that those will bear sort of the burden of climate breakdown, environmental sort of crisis, are those least responsible, um, whether that's in the global north, but obviously on a sort of global level, those least responsible will be most on the front line of this change. And then that links exactly to Laurie's um, point about this sort of deep history. And the Easter Island sort of chapter you mentioned, it kind of opens with this sort of Jared Diamond-esque sort of uh, interpretation Mm. of Easter Island, which is this sort of famous story of, you know, notional ecocide of the sort of tragedy of the commons that Diamond uses in his book Collapse, in which Easter Island is held up as like, oh, well, humanity as a sort of species, is inherently greedy. It can't sort of, you know, act sustainably. We're, we're doomed to sort of, you know, trash the planet. And sort of, you know, the Easter Island is just the story of, you know, planet Earth in miniature. And then sort of really actually, and then what the sort of second part of, of that chapter says is actually, you know, the conventional narratives are completely wrong. But actually sort of the Easter Island, you know, communities, indigenous communities, had built up a way of sort of sustainable and sort of, democratic stewardship of the natural commons had sort of you know, cultivated a relationship with natural systems that had uh, created some fairly equitable, sort of sustainable life world. And it was exactly as Laurie mentioned, sort of the coming of imperialism, the coming of slavery, the coming of sort of the violent drawing in of the East Island peoples and its sort of resources into circuits of global accumulation that drove the ecological collapse of Easter Island. And so actually the story is a story of Easter Island that you can transpose to the world, but it's not the one that the mainstream says. It's actually exactly these sort of you know, deep centuries of exploitation, of extraction, and then metasizing that's the, the lesson that we that we have to draw from that. And then that again, yeah, points towards that politics of you know what we need to recognize is that another world is not just possible, another world is coming. You know, mm-hmm. there is change coming down the track regardless. And in the face of that, it is just much safer, much more prudent to effect radical transformation now rather than waiting for those uneven effects to sort of you know flow through and sort of all the violence and pain and that will inevitably bring so i think it's really important to stress another world is happening 
and that sort of the top 1% may well be able to preclude themselves from those consequences. But actually, this gives us an opening to really transform the foundational institutions of our economy and societies. Mm. I mean, the other opening that this creates is, as we've seen recently from the right, and you guys comment on this quite a lot, the rise of kind of eco-fascism in the book, the ways in which political entrepreneurs on the far right have moved from some form of climate denialism to an acceptance of climate breakdown and the response to that being we'll put up the borders we will you know put more money into frontex we'll kind of protect the european way of life in inverted commas or we'll you know kill migrants in the channel if you're pretty patel and the kind of increasingly overt use of climate breakdown as a justification for those measures and it does seem like the further we get down the the kind of road the more difficult it seems to create the kind of change that we need to create in order to really, you know, mitigate the worst effects of climate breakdown and to support those who are already living with them. The easier it is, it is for the right to just say, well, it's done. Let's protect mm. us and our own. So how do we fight back against that form of populism? I think one one place to start is to banish another mental model or frame that often exists in discussions in the environment. So we, we were talking just now about the, the the frame around Easter Island is one of, oh, it's to do with our innate short-termism, our psychology and the use of bad technologies, when actually in that case, it was to do with these huge global economic structures that push people to go over to Easter Island and slave and bring their diseases. And another unuseful mental model that often exists on the environment is the model of the cliff edge, the sort of tyranny of the binary where, you know, it's, it's win or lose. It's uh, we'll save the world or the world presumably ends. It's we have 12 years left to do that, after which, what, on the 1st of January 2030, it's gone. <laughs> now, it's understandable yeah. why we lock into some of these kind of frames and they have some kind of use. But the mental model that we need in our minds that was much more useful is instead of a, a cliff edge that, you know, it's insinuated we're driving towards, think instead of, of a sort of a vast, rocky desert type area that you're 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 driving through on what is a, a newly laid very smooth road and that road has been really the condition that we've been in over the last 11 to twelve thousand years this in the geological literature of the holocene and instead of us going over cliff edge we've got to think that that car is starting to come off that smooth road and onto a very bumpy alien topography with all sorts of surprises and ruts and holes and all this kind of stuff and it leads an extra extra downward and at the bottom, there probably is a cliff edge at which we have catastrophic outcomes when we're starting to, for just the climate benefit, go towards three and four degrees of temperature rise. Now, that provides us with a better mental model to understand the type of unprecedented environmental destabilization that we will start to see in the coming years and decades. In many ways, we may be about to move up the exponential curve of that change in the same way that we did back in March and April 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic. And it also enables us to, to better understand the horrendous political things, as you're saying here, that come along down the line. And it just seems, as you're saying, that one of the biggest concerns we need to have in our minds is that it, it almost is getting, we're not quite there yet, I don't think, but we're almost getting to the point where it'd be very easy for someone on the far right to stand up and say, liberal elite soldier out, they knew that this was coming, the world is now mm. trashed, and we've got to protect what's left. And what this requires is, A, a different proposition from people in progressive communities, which I think is already being explored and is situated in something like a Green New Deal and the big changes we can make to our systems that would benefit us anyway. 
But alongside the proposition of what we want the world to be like and fighting hard to make that happen, we need to make sure our strategies for doing so are robust to the fact that this is going to get far worse before we really have a chance to try and make it better, to try and change the environmental destabilization that's leading to this point. And that's a horrifying thing to have to comprehend. And in many ways, it's easier to think of the cliff edge model because it simplifies mm. it beyond the complexities that it, it holds when you think about it in less of a binary way. But it's crucial that we do that because, I mean, to put it crudely, it's not the 2010s anymore. And it was never always going to be the 2010s. Yeah. And the conditions in which we're trying to move beyond neoliberalism and do so in a way that doesn't stop environmental destabilization from getting out of control will themselves be a result of the consequences coming back. When to, you know, the age of environmental breakdown is the age of consequences as well. It's not that there's a sort of very hard binary between, you know, sort of far-right denialists, you know, eco-fascists who seek to sort of use the sort of environmental crisis exactly to accelerate already existing forms of you know, violent stratification, borders, carceral regimes. But, you know, you can see, as Laurie um, you know, gestured towards, exactly how the sort of current that you know, unites, you know, all factions of the right in all its of you know, different articulations, you know, the defence and reproduction of dominance and um, you know, illegitimate hierarchies, whether that's between genders, between races, mm. classes, you know, that sort of attempt to naturalise, defend and extend those patterns of hierarchy and domination intersect very, very neatly in a very, very dangerous way with the sort of material realities that will be able to be presented, you know, when we do have... Mm millions and millions of people being violently displaced. So I think one of the key elements we sort of also talk about um, in the book is sort of you know, politics of you know, humane migration, of you know, dismantling some of the sort of, you know, carceral institutions, because I think the, the flip side will be you know, sort of blurring together of denialists, of traditional sort of you know, neoliberal approaches and increasingly sort of ear-fascist sort of sentiments that will form into an incredibly dangerous mix and be supercharged by external events. I think the other thing that you guys do in the book is that um, with with all of this discussion of eco-fascism, tipping points, it's very easy to, as we've discussed, kind of fall into one form or another of, of pessimism or, you know, just become very very disillusioned with all of this stuff i re- remember really vividly once speaking at an, at an event where we were talking about the green new deal and someone came up to me afterwards and said well you know what's the point in any of this what's the point in labor like winning any election what's the point in joining any movement when mm. ultimately we're all going to be dead in however many years and if you speak to a lot of younger people that does seem to be the message that they are picking up for a whole host of reasons and at least partly because it seems to match up with a lot of their lived experience of uh, a kind of you know failing and pretty corrupt and broken political economic model but you guys are very set on the the fact that we need to take a certain level of if not optimism then at least kind of belief in our capacity to change things from this moment Um, and this could be something of a tipping point in terms of not just our relationship with nature but our relationship with each other all of the kind of institutions that that govern our lives and I want to know a why you guys feel optimistic about this and b how listeners can kind of get involved and translate that sense that something's wrong into a willingness to join up with other people to actually you know change things because I think that's mm. the only way that you really start getting a sense of okay mm. things can be different yeah and I th- let, let's use another mental frame uh, to think this through as well 
imagine like a saddlebag, like you're sitting on the back of a, a horse or anything that's sort of pommel shape, and you're having to balance yourself and stop from slipping down either side. On one side, there is a, a kind of increasingly hysterical, in many ways, ignorant, sort of often techno utopianism, sort of one more heave to market perfection. We're going to do this now. Everyone's signing up to net zero. The USA is back, baby, that kind of stuff. And on the other side, you could equally tip over in the other direction and enter into this fatalism that often, in some cases, I think borders on the misanthropic and very much has the frame of a cliff edge in mind. And it is going to be supremely hard to keep ourselves on balanced in between those two forces, if that's the best way to, to look at it. Because, you know, both hold elements of kernels of the truth you know we are going to have to apply certain technologies to try to solve this problem and the whole thing is extraordinarily perilous but within that when you're sitting on that as best you can it's important to remember to remember two things that one as, as as we say all the way through the book we have been brought to this pace because of issues of power and by extension therefore politics and in some ways that is horrifying to realize this because it makes you realize that it isn't just an issue of technologies and that actually it's an issue of politics, which itself has huge inertias in and you know, beating certain power dynamics is extraordinarily difficult. Or at least you look back through history and you, you think that to do the kind of things that we want, it would be very difficult. But on the flip side, it's hugely energizing to realize this because it shows you that those things are absolutely possible. The science is telling us that we haven't yet crossed certain physical points where physically we can't do anything and it's going to be in the future and the current path we're on there are those moments that lie in store but fighting for every small increment of temperature rise or every bit of soil that's depleted or every species that is made extinct that is absolutely possible and there isn't right now any sort of mandated physical reality where it's too late on that part not at all and so when you're when you're on that saddleback and you're thinking about how this is about politics, you also have then got to look around at how other people have realised this. Other people are trying to balance themselves against slipping into the easy worlds of, of sort of over-optimism or fatalism and look around at all those amazing efforts that are being made to try and actually re-enchant politics to, to have it become a powerful force that can actually change systems instead of meekly respond to some of the symptoms of those of the systems themselves. And a last thing I would say is that within that, you must look around at some of the things that are already starting to happen and make sure that you don't slip into the, I think, quite easy thing to do, which is to dismiss them as being, mm. you know, of course, people would say that no real change is going to occur because there are things that are afoot that at least show an opportunity for change that, that and that opportunity didn't necessarily exist before. Net zero targets, the, the sort of moving beyond or at least suspending the usual rules around the deficit myth in, in the US, uh, even down to things like, you know, the, the, the so-called motorist lobby not being able to hold itself against the fact that we're now going to phase out the internal combustion engine effectively in this country yeah. in, in the space of in the space of years, you know. So see all of that and don't for one second think that, oh, it means that, you know, it's too it's too late, but also don't think that it, it means that we're going to sort this out, but exist in that liminal space between the two. Mm. I mean, I, I think for me, the optimism, I think, you know, echoing you know that line of um, David Graeber's, but it's exactly that, 
despite the fact that there is intense ideological and material effort to sort of cast as natural and immutable and unchangeable the institutions and relationships that make up our sort of life worlds, they aren't in fact natural, but are made, made by sort of, you know, sort of humans and human relationships and sort of uh, human systems, and therefore can be changed. And not only can they be changed, if the sort of political power, social power can be mobilised to sort of affect that in a sort of, you know, sort of systemic way, not only can they be changed, we know sort of the tools and the institutions that we need to build to create a sort of future of post-carbon plenty. So the, whether that's sort of tools of democratic planning and sort of, you know, centering human needs and sort of non, non-human needs over sort of the maximization of profit, whether that's sort of the socialization of investment to sort of overcome the failure of, you know, sort of um, profit making as the motive to invest in the technologies, the systems, the infrastructures we need whether that's the democratization of production and sort of centering of new forms of work, not, you know, and sort of the sort of justice, not just in sort of social reproduction, but in ecological reproduction in the round, whether that's a new sort of era of commoning it to push back against the expropriation and enclosure that in some ways is driving the degradation of both social and natural worlds, and whether that's commoning land, food systems, um, you know, sort of urban uh, sort of spaces, built environments through to data and digital technologies, intellectual property. We really know what many of the tools are. So that leads you to the sort of third point, which is optimism does not mean unrealistic expectations. You know, we should sort of live in the world as it is and sort of face squarely up to sort of uh, you know the difficulties before us, but it does then point to the third part of it. if the world is rechangeable, if we know how we can re you know remake it, the tools we need. The question then becomes how, and it's about how you build up that sort of social power to affect that leverage. And there, you know, in terms of what you know what you might do, it's it's really about how can you begin with others to sort of accumulate the forms of social power, collectivity, democratic sort of solidarity we need to affect that transformation. And that can be every. And in some ways, that doesn't need to be centered on sort of quote unquote the environment. It just needs to be about social power in the round. So whether it's renters' unions, whether it's about sort of you know, working with others to sort of make sure that the you know, recovery in your local area, if and when it comes is centred on sort of, you know, green investments, sort of transforming town centres into space of communal luxury rather than just sort of commodification. It can be about sort of, you know, campaigning in the UK for sort of, you know, with trade unions around sort of, you know, pay rises for sort of care workers, joining sort of workplace struggles in the round. There's a whole host of interconnected struggles that need to be conjoined. And that is, you know, ultimately our best hope. It is that sort of bringing together of the forces that are on you know, on the side of life over sort of accumulation for accumulation's sake and cohering that into a democratic mass. And that, you know, there's absolutely no guarantee that will win out, will win out in the time frame we need. But it is the sort of, you know, the hopeful sort of thread that runs through the book of like, we know if we can accumulate the power, democratically to change things, there is hope, but we shouldn't sort of, you know, expect that anyone else will come to save us. Guys, thank you both so much for coming on A World to Win. And do make sure that you pick up their book, Planet on Fire, which is out with Verso now. My pleasure. Bye. Thanks, Grace.